Welcome to Lineouts by Earful of Dirt, bringing you conversations with rugby newsmakers about the greatest sport on the planet. Welcome to Lineouts, everyone. Uh, this is a, a series we put on pause for a little bit over here at Earful of Dirt, um, but we're back, and this time we have our guest, Harry Bennett, who is the new head coach of UCLA Men's Rugby Club. Um, let's just start with, you know, how are you doing today? And, you know, what drew you to rugby and UCLA in particular? Hey, Josh. Um, first of all, thanks for, very much for having me. Um, I, I've been listening in with Earful of Dirt um, for a while now, and obviously you guys were sort of pioneering the the rugby podcast space for a while now in, in the U.S., and um, you know, certainly a, a go-to listen for any rugby avid fans um, domestically. So, yeah, really, really appreciate you having me on. Um, rugby, what drew me to rugby? It's a great question. Um, how much time do you have? <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, without diving too too deep into it, I think um, I come from a pretty um, rich family of, of rugby fanatics and um, it was always a part of my family upbringing and, um, my father, my uncles and, and grandfather and, and all of that stuff sort of were, were big in the sport. And um, I think my first taste of it actually was an old VCR tape that my dad had recorded a Bledisloe Cup match between Australia and New Zealand back in 1992. And I can remember um, Jason Little at the time was the Wallaby centre and he scored a try off the kickoff against the All Blacks in the Bledisloe match game. And um, I think my dad sat me down in front of the TV and said, if there's anything you're going to watch, it's this. And from that point on, I was, I was hooked. So that was my, that was, I guess, my introduction to rugby. And then, so continuing on your rugby background, you know, you ended up being contracted with the Waratahs. Um, I guess for, for rugby fans in America who don't know the whole, how that process whole works. Can you just walk us through that, you know, as much as you can or in the time we have? <laughs> yeah, sure. No, no problems. So again, super fortunate. Um, thanks to my parents and my family, I was able to go to one of Australia's biggest rugby nurseries in the King School, um, which is part of the GPS um, high school system over in specifically Sydney, New South Wales. Mm. Um, that school in itself, I think, has produced something like, I don't know, I'm going to get called out on this, but I'm just going to throw a number out there, but a lot of wallabies. Um, and a lot of Australian schoolboys have come out of that program. And um, I was fortunate enough to be one of those Aussie schoolboys um, in my senior year at, at the King School. And from that, um, I think specifically we were playing Fiji schools at the time in Sydney and there are a few Waratah um, Academy scouts sort of there. And I got, was lucky enough with a handful of my schoolmates at the time to get a call from New South Wales Waratahs to come and signed with them on an academy contract and um, from there sort of just built my way through the pro the program at the Waratahs and, and was fortunate enough to be there for, for the time I was. So um, there, there's many uh, there's many avenues and pathways into professional rugby. Um, I think mine was probably the most streamlined in the sense of age-grade rugby into academy setup, into a professional environment um, without sort of having to go down the path of playing club rugby or, or backyard sort of park footy at the time and then sort of approach it that way. But, um, yeah, I love my experience and pretty, 
pretty fortunate to be alongside some some big names in Australian rugby and world rugby at the time. Right. And then, so what, I guess what drew you to the U.S.? And I know you, you landed with Santa Monica. I guess, so what drew you to the U.S.? And then why Santa Monica specifically? Yeah, um, I... During my time at the War, Waratahs, um, I wasn't so lucky in the sense that I had um, quite a few injuries that put me back. I had back-to-back shoulder surgeries and um, probably wasn't in the right space mentally at the time. And a lot of my friends um, at that same period of time were able to travel overseas and off the guidance of a few of my mentors at the time said maybe it was a good idea to sort of take some time off rugby or, or or get out of Sydney and go travel for six months and then, you know, clear the head, come back and um, start that pathway to professional rugby um, again. So I always had a passion for America. I loved American sports. I'm a massive NFL fan and um, LA just sort of felt like at the time the, the place that made the most sense. I think um, the PRP was probably the highest level of rugby in the States at the time outside of going over to um, the East Coast, which I probably wasn't as familiar with. Um, So, yeah, landed with Santa Monica, um, had great conversations with a fellow Aussie over there in Mark Stabina, who's now commentating with um, MLR. Um, So it was, I guess that was familiar territory for me as well. Um, And funnily enough, I think two months into my time with Santa Monica, I realised that I was having too much fun and, and loving my experience in the States and decided to to stay there and um, now seven years into that same trip. So you, you've had your time at Santa Monica. You won Rookie of the Year, I believe, in 2015 for the PRP. You then got the opportunity for the, I, I forget what iteration of pro attempt it was, with the Professional Rugby Organization, as it was called. Very creative. In the Sacramento Express. How was that experience? Uh, It was pretty cool in the sense that I didn't really know what professional rugby in America would look like. And um, although it was a pretty ambitious venture for for one person, I guess, to try and take on professional rugby, um, the way it ended probably wasn't the best. And I'm sure everyone's got a lot of opinions around how it sort of unfolded. But um, I think looking at the silver lining, and I've said this a handful of times, I don't think MLR would be where it is without the guidance of pro rugby in the sense that here was a blueprint, whether it be right or wrong, but mm-hmm. here is a formula that we could at least gauge and, and learn from to be able to then get this iteration of of made um, MLR. So um, short stint in the pro competition, obviously it was only one year and um, most players were sort of relocated um with that sort of choice and it was almost into like a a pick of the hat sort of situation but mm-hmm. um you know in that time i think i probably expanded my network in in usa rugby more than i had in the in the previous 18 months of being in la so i loved the experience as short as it was and um it was a great sort of stepping stone for me into the next sort of steps in in my rugby career in the us and then following that experience with Sacramento you headed to the unknown in the east coast with New York Athletic Club um you guys played for the national championship D1 club national championship how what i guess what spawned that experience you know moving from the west coast to the east coast yeah um a couple things um 
During the time at Sacramento, I was contacted by both Alex Magleby and um, Mike Tolkien from the USA rugby system and sort of just inquired around my interest to stay in the US and potentially look at eligibility um, for the US Eagles. And obviously, anytime you get an email of, of that caliber from, from those types of guys, you get pretty excited. And um, off the back of that, there was there was an opportunity to go to the New York Athletic Club and um, I had a few contacts from Australia that had been there as well and said nothing but amazing things. And ironically, a um, well, my best man, I'm about to get married this year, but my best man um, was actually based in New York and was assistant coaching there as well at the time. So he was just a- another sort of advocate for the program and then the opportunity to come to New York and, and sort of use that as another stepping stone in a landscape that, was pretty unknown at that time because there was obviously rumours that pro was probably going to fold mm. uh, off the back of that with no sort of organisation at the time to sort of take that that void. So um, the ARP seemingly was the next um, best pathway for me. And I think what was so cool about that experience was my first ever game for the AC was against Old Blue. And I think across the field there might have been 14 or 15 current USA Eagles playing in that one game. So it was a pretty awesome experience. And if I'm honest, because the pro rugby was predominantly West Coast at the time, um, a lot of the East Coast guys didn't really um, have the opportunity to go and play in pro. That level of rugby for the AC against that old blue team at the time was probably a higher standard than I'd played for the pro competition. Well, that, you know, especially across the starting lineup of Eagles, that can definitely see that, you know, and then eventually Major League Rugby comes along, you know, first season comes around with only seven teams. New York finally gets a team. James Kennedy starts it up, you know, did he have, just describe your overall experience, you know, how you joined, how, how everything went so far? Yeah. Um, so there was a bit of interest from a few of the teams that, that initially started Major League Rugby. Um Again, for me, that meant that I'd have to relocate from New York and there were rumours that New York were at the time looking to to get a team in the following year and I was having um, too good of an experience in New York and, and with the AC at the time that I was patient or happy enough to sort of bide my time for 12 months and continue with New York Athletic Club knowing that 12 months down the line um, New York would have its own major league team and there was a few exhibition games that um, New York played in and um any of the guys that were part of that program at the time sort of look back on it with a, a slight giggle in the sense of how much we sort of just um, bootstrapped that entire experience. And, um, you know, where where New York is now um, compared to where it started is, um, you know, chalk and cheese. But I, I will say that it, it took a lot of guts and a lot of innovation for those original members of the organization to, to get that off the ground and, and to get it to where it is. So, um, you know, it, it's really important that, you know, we don't forget that. And, and for guys like James Kennedy and, and Mike Petrie and the likes to be able to, to be a part of that original team um, is, a, is a really cool experience. For sure. And then I know the question on a lot of people's not minds, especially right now is, you know, where are you guys going to, where was, where's Rooney going to play? How, I guess, how did that all work out? You know, one year you're playing in a baseball stadium, the next year you're splitting time between a college and a high school in New Jersey. How, you know, how, how would that all work out in the end? 
Um, I, I don't think anyone has the answer to that. Um, I think anyone that knows New York and, and rugby in New York, um, finding available space 12 months of the year uh, is probably the toughest obstacle to deal with. Um, so it's a constantly evolving situation. And, um, you know, end game is to to finally call a place like potentially Red Bull Stadium home. And I think that's the aspirations of the entire organisation. But mm -hmm. there's a few steps, obviously, to go between getting, getting there. And um, I think for the time being, it's just trying to provide... Um, you know, a, a seamless experience for all stakeholders within um, rugby New York as they possibly can. And, um, you know, speaking to a, a handful of ex-teammates that, that are going through preseason now, like every year just seems to get better and better in terms of the operations around the program. And mm -hmm. um, although it's not perfect and there's the obvious sort of hurdles that you've got to go through to live whilst living in New York, um, they're, they're, getting, they're getting there and they're, they're going in the right direction. So... I'm too removed right now to sort of know the answers of, of what's going to happen this season in terms of where they're playing and all of that. But, um, yeah, I, I'm excited to sort of see what sort of product they put out on the field and um, hopefully it's it's on a nice nice paddock. <laughs> uh, let's, let's, I guess, move into, move into, you know, your college coaching, back, um, just college coaching in general. Um, you're, when you're with New York, you, you jumped in with Fordham and, I guess just why the jump to college coaching? You know, why not take up, you know, a club position? Um, I think my time back at the King School in Australia, um, I had really fond memories of sort of just that environment of whether it be incorporating academics and, and athletics together in an environment that has amazing facilities and you're spending almost 90% of your time with your teammates uh, and it, it's to me, probably the most pure form of, of playing the game because you're doing it for the love, right? And um, there's no financial incentive. Obviously, there's aspirations to then move on to um, higher achievements and, and pathways into professional rugby. But um, I, I always considered my time playing at the King School was very similar to, I guess, the college environment here in terms of all those things that I listed. So, um in my time when I was in LA, I was fortunate enough to, to meet a handful of people, whether I were current players or just sort of families involved in UCLA rugby. And the, the closer I sort of got to that environment, the more I sort of came to realise that that was an opportunity or, or something I'd be really interested in. And if an opportunity did come up, um, I'd be crazy not to, to throw my hat in the ring and, and see how it sort of panned out. So um super fortunate at new york to be surrounded by some pretty amazing coaches and senior players um to gain my experience within a coaching environment and and take on those sort of responsibilities and now fortunate enough to be able to apply those along with my recent playing experience to sort of gel those two things together to provide these these college athletes the best sort of understanding and, and pathway towards whatever they want to do in terms of professional rugby, entering the draft, or just doing it for the love of the game now and knowing that they've got careers that they're focused on after their time at, at UCLA. You mentioned learning from coaches and players. Um, I know, excuse me, I know the press conference had mentioned, you know, your learnings from Scott Wisemanel, Andy Ellis, and Marty Veal. What, do you, what are your biggest takeaways from them that you can bring with you as a coach? Yeah, I think... Um, 
two things. The the thing that probably gets neglected the most but is driven really, really hard in modern coaching is going back to the, the original purpose and finding, you know, an identity around a team and, and just striving for a common purpose outside of just winning and the X's and O's of, of a game of rugby. I think um, rugby is so unique in the sense that it's always got that cultural element of family and community. And um, if we don't leverage that in the, in the best possible way as coaches and as administrators for our players, then we're probably failing them. So um, one thing that I've learned significantly probably from my time over the last 12 months um, being at New York is the identity and the purpose and the meaning around playing for the club, the jersey, the community that you play for. And um, it, it kicks me to and I say this with a bit of a laugh, but um, the one guy that really drove that home was Andy Ellis. Um, obviously, his pedigree and his background um, at the Crusaders and at the All Blacks, that you, you talk about legacy and and what it means to play for those those jerseys and simplest and sort of breaking it down to the simplest form of rugby. It's it's beyond being the best rugby player. It's it's being the best teammate. It's making sure that you're being a positive impact on every situation that you possibly can be for the next generation of players that come through and. By doing that, you're making the the club and the culture and the environment around that program better. And then, so let's move on to your coaching staff. You know, you're joined by Adam Ash, Charlie Abel, and Christian Rodriguez. Um, Ash was the interim coach last year. What what do they bring to the table? And you know, what what were you able to you know pick up on from Adam um, as you joined up with his prior experience with the team? Yeah. I, I, I can't thank those guys enough for, for what they did in the fall under pretty um, challenging circumstances and, and, you know, just them juggling their professional careers and, and having the, um, the aspirations or, and the enjoyment to coach at the college level as well is, is pretty awesome. And um, I was fortunate enough that coming in as late as I did um, into the program before the 15 season started, there wasn't a whole lot that um, I felt like I needed to change. And I certainly wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel. Um, it was more a case of just helping refocus those coaches back to what they wanted to do. And, um, you know, Adam in particular did a great job as interim head coach um, during his time, but he's also expressed a real passion and a desire now to re reinvent himself back to the assistant coach and take on responsibilities um, around the defensive system and, and our forwards in particular. So, um, yeah, I, I can't thank those three enough for, for their involvement. And then also just from a playing group perspective, they've got the best understanding in terms of what our current playing group are because they've dealt with them for the last six months. So um, uh, me utilizing that experience is just an obvious sort of decision to to, to keep them on and um i guess extending that having the the relationship with the guiltinis on a pretty intimate level in the sense of all three of those guys that you've mentioned as assistant coaches are all full-time players at the guiltinis dave clancy's moved on to the guiltinis in the academy mm -hmm. um director role so there's there's an obvious um partnership there between the two programs that would be crazy for any new head coach coming in not to not to leverage to the to their best ability so um yeah really really excited about having those guys on and um you know they've been absolutely monumental in terms of getting the players to where they are um on, on a weekly basis so yeah it's been great
You mentioned leveraging that partnership. Are they leveraging that partnership with you trying to pull you back onto the field? Uh, I can't really speak to that right now. I've um, uh, All my commitment is completely tied up with UCLA. I think part of the, the, um, the hiring process with, with UCLA was making sure that whoever was coming in was on a full-time basis. And they've been so great to me in terms of um, giving me this opportunity and um, with that opportunity comes responsibility and and that is entirely focused upon coaching at UCLA Rugby right now. So, um, yeah, as it is, I'm officially retired from playing and it will remain that way. So um, that's that's basically it. Understandable, absolutely understandable. Um, you mentioned um, coming in right before the season started. What have you been able to pick up from the players, you know, where, where are they – where are they exceeding at and where are areas from improvement that you've identified? Yeah. Um, I guess the things that I've been really, really excited about is just the the raw talent and the enthusiasm and the application to, to learn from the playing group. Um, we've got some, you know, exciting individuals amongst the team, but, you know, it, it takes more than individuals to be able to win a game of rugby and, and be successful in a, in a campaign. So I, I've been really, really impressed by the, application of of the entire squad and the willingness of all our players um across the board to to show their commitment um monday to friday and and hoping to put out a a good performance on saturday um part of the recruitment um process for me and and sort of understanding the playing squad was obviously looking at where we can improve and I think, um, and I get the support, particularly from the players, because this is this is aspects of, of their game that they're wanting to improve on as well. But just continuing to upskill um, all our players on a on a fundamental basis, um, regardless of what number they've got on the back of their jersey, is really important. The style of brand and the brand of rugby that we're trying to play is is fun, expansive, exciting. Um, Australian background, I have to say that. So um, it's important that we're not so restrictive and regimented in terms of what we're looking for from our players and that they've got the ability to express themselves on the on the rugby pitch knowing that they've trained it enough times during the week and um off the back of that it's just putting in systems in place um strength and conditioning and just a rigorous training schedule and review process for our players to get the best out of themselves away from rugby as well so that you know they're they're getting in their strength work, they're getting in their conditioning work, they're getting in their review, um, they're understanding, I guess, the mindset of what it takes to be a professional rugby player just based on the accountability of a schedule each week and, and the preparation that's required to go into a performance on Saturday. Um, mm. And I will say that the challenges that myself and the coaching staff are throwing at these guys, they're, they're absolutely loving it and they're doing a really good job. And then, um, you know, just taking your time as, you know, both a club rugby and a professional rugby player, do you feel there's a difference in the playing styles from the East Coast and West Coast, maybe somewhere along the lines of, you know, Northern Hemisphere rugby, Southern Hemisphere rugby? Yeah, I mean, less now in the MLR because I think ownership dictates recruitment in the MLR. And um, I think now looking into 2022 in the MLR, New York is – New Zealand base. There's a lot of New Zealand players coming in from New York. Um, there's a lot of South African guys that have been recruited into the Free Jacks this year. Um, so I think the disparity of talent across the world in the MLR is 
only a good thing because you're getting different perspectives and styles of play and it's up to you as coaching staff and organisations to be able to get the best out of that and find cohesion within it. Um, mm. Club level is a little bit different because you're predominantly getting domestic guys, um, probably 90% of your roster's domestic. Um, and to that point, I think the landscape and the environment dictates a lot of the way rugby's played. Obviously, um, East Coast, the weather's probably a lot colder and you're playing on turf fields versus on the West Coast, you've got warm weather and you're playing on expansive big grass grass fields. So um, I think just those two things are, are the obvious sort of answer when it comes to style of play. But uh, across the board, I'd say the modern American rugby player now has so much at their disposal in terms of how to upskill themselves and, and resources around rugby IQ that they're getting so much better now just because they have that access. And now because of the clear pathway into major league rugby, there's a reason to, to go and seek that knowledge and improve their skill set. And then you guys have a game this weekend at Arizona, your first away game as a coach. How do you, are there any, you know, lessons you could take away as a player that you can give to your team in going on a road trip like this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, preparation is everything. And and it's not just the on-field preparation, it's doing your off-field preparation as well. And the more detail and structure I can provide to our players um, off the field allows them to relax and just focus on the things they need to control on the field. So um, I'd like to say that being a fly half um, in, a, in a past life meant that I felt it was my responsibility to to know every single little bit little bit of detail um, on field, off field, and I certainly bring that professionalism to the coaching um, side of things as well. So, as I said, if I can provide clear frameworks and structures um, to our playing group, then it means that they just know that they've just got to tick those boxes when it comes to their off-field admin and all they have to worry about is their their own individual performances and what they have to focus on for Saturday's game. Sounds good. Um, I guess we'll move into a little bit, you know, and go back to MLR a little bit. You mentioned your time there. I guess was more questions focused on the league in general. Where do you feel the league is succeeding? Um, I, I think the brand exposure is awesome. Um, I'm biased in that in the sense that I'm an expat, so I have a lot of a lot of rugby friends and family overseas, and um, their opinions and perspective is that America's um, you know a fun a fun lifestyle to to be a part of, and the fact that there's professional rugby over here now that's enticing a handful of big names to be a part of it, then everyone wants to to sort of keep an eye on it all and. Um, I think the sports fan in America is probably the best sports fan in the world in the sense of how tribal and passionate they are when it comes to supporting their own team. Um, mm-hmm. Even at club level, my experience in America um, when it comes to, the, you know, sports fans and, and rugby fans is that they're the most enthusiastic and passionate supporters out there. And I think obviously that just a, is sort of part and parcel of being any sports fanatic um, in America. So I think the commercial aspect of it um, is doing a really, really good job. And then the on-field product is just getting better and better every single year as well. And that's for a handful of reasons. Obviously, um, you know, you're getting a lot more uh, top-level guys from overseas coming in and and sort of plugging those key, key areas. But the domestic player as well is getting now four or five years of 
professional rugby in the US for them to upskill them themselves. And um, it means now that the college player, as I said, has got a clear pathway through the draft to, to be at Major League Rugby. So now they're applying themselves probably harder than they ever have to, to get those opportunities. You mentioned the, the overseas guys coming over. I know the, the league has a, a match day limit of 10 foreign players. Do you, and I know that's a flashpoint among fans, but do you feel that those guys are necessary to raise the skill level of the domestic players? Absolutely. Uh, and, and it's, it's, I think it's 20% what you see on the field on a Saturday, and it's 80% of what you don't see Sunday to Friday when they're in their training facilities and, and the relationship that those guys have with the local players. Um, it is so valuable to any young player. Um, foreign or domestic in the MLR, just to be around guys of that caliber, um, the high-profile athletes and rugby players of that caliber on a day-to-day basis and just learning from them um, is so valuable. So um, I think it's definitely, um, you know, doing doing its best in, in terms of making sure that there's a good balance between foreign and domestic players. And I think once the domestic pool gets to a point where it has the capability to expand and have enough players to be able to play at that level, which it's really, really close to getting there. Um, you'll see more domestic guys challenging um, for those, those foreign spots. And, you know, every coach, every organized organization is very, very aware of the restrictions that is in place in terms of how difficult it is to get international guys in, whether it be the cap on your match day roster, visa process, just Mm -hmm. relocating families. Um, I think if you've got two players equally matched, one's foreign, one's domestic, the coach is going to want to pick the domestic guy every single time because um, it, it helps the growth of their team and it helps um, sort of just free up a, a little bit more stress, I guess, around just having um, to deal with all the off-field stuff that comes with um, recruiting international players. And then where where are some areas you feel the league can still improve in? It's uh, a good question. Um, it's a good question. Operationally, I think it's doing a really good job and I think you're restricted just based on it being a startup mentality that um, – you know, I think MLR as an organisation are being really mindful of not being too ambitious too soon and and I think that's a good thing in the sense that um, you don't want to leave anyone behind and some teams might be able to accommodate um, the big ideas and the big ambitions but some teams may not be able to and um, although, you know, players talk about the frustrations of, of salary caps and sort of where they are right now, I think it, it, it does lend to making sure that there's an equal playing field. Um, mm-hmm across the board and from an operational standpoint from my understanding and again this is a naive statement in the sense that i was a player in the mlr i wasn't part of um front office or anything like that but there are also systems and processes in place um, from an organizational standpoint that make sure that every team has a fair and equal opportunity um at a seat at the table um in terms of how they they run their their own program so uh, Answering your question, I guess it's continuing with the ambition of wanting to grow and expand this this league as fast as they can, but being mindful that you don't want to grow too fast too soon and and potentially leave um, some franchises or, or, or some individuals behind and, and you're doing it with a conscious effort of making sure that the growth of the league is, you know, across all, all teams and not just focused on a handful. For sure. And then... 
I think it's everyone's favorite question. What do you think of the Giltinis, Gilgrodis names? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I think when you first hear about it, there's a lot of confusion and hesitation around the why. Um, an amazing marketing ploy, whether you love it or not, you're talking about it. So um, any publicity is good publicity, right? And I think both those programs now, um, you know, can sort of put their put their name down and say that they're putting the performances and the results on the field as well to be able to say, well, you know, come meet us at the top, essentially, in terms of, of, of what they're doing as organisations. So um, it, I think it'd be a little bit of a different story if, those teams were struggling um, with their results, but um, the fact that they're not and they're sort of, you know, at least competing at the at the top top four or five teams of the competition on a consistent basis now is, um, they I guess at this stage they can do what they want. I'm yet to see or or hear of or, or taste a Gilgroni or a Giltini, so. <laughs> Um, when that comes around, I guess we'll all have their own opinions around the product. But from a name standpoint, um, yeah, it's the talking point in global rugby. Um, a lot of people want to know the same question. So they're, they're certainly doing their job in terms of brand awareness. And then, uh, you know, hypothetical question. I know the league has ambitions of growing. I think they, I think I read somewhere, I forget exactly where they want to, you know, get to that NFL size, 32 teams. If you had the money, where would you put a team and, you know, just a couple of players you'd like to see on the squad? I think where I'd like to see a team is probably different to where there's ambitions of teams already sort of putting their hat in the ring for it. But I think um, in terms of just marketing and, and brand recognition and, and the city that would certainly grab the attention on a, an international scale would be Miami. I think it'd be pretty cool to have a team based down down in Florida there. Like obviously um, there are other parts of the country that have um, probably a, a more established um, grassroots level of rugby for them to tap into and, and facilities and all of that stuff. Um, but in terms of purely just ambitious and exciting opportunities, I think Miami would be a really, really cool place and um, players I'd love to see there. I think, it's hard at the moment you're sort of getting um you know senior international guys that are towards the end of their careers and um coming over here for you know maybe a couple of seasons or so so you're not really we're yet to sort of get a big name in, in the middle of their career and at the height of their powers um in that regard so maybe someone on the back end that's sort of looking to come over here and make a splash um Ooh, that fits the Miami brand. I don't know. <laughs> Who is that guy? I'm gonna have you're gonna have to come back to me on that one. I'm gonna need more time to think about it. And I guess if you go in Miami, you gotta go Miami Vice Colors, you know. Right? Yeah. Opposite Giltinis. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Just a you know, a couple of general rugby questions for you. How did uh, with the, the implementation worldwide of you know the 5022 and the goal line dropouts, how do you feel about those two? I love it. I, uh, being Australian, I grew up with rugby league and that's where those two rules came from, in my opinion. Um, the goal line dropout and the 40-20 in rugby league. I, I think the the 50-22 is, um, you know, a great rule in the sense that you're softening the front line because you've got to safeguard and protect the backfield and the edges a little bit more. So I think it just makes defensive teams probably a little bit mindful about 
how they're covering the full width of the field. Um, and if you're good enough to, to be able to leverage that, then all to it. And goal line dropout, um, I think there's there's sort of still an experiment around the best application of that. Is it a long kick and just kick it deep and go full rugby league with a big big forward wind up and, and running it back 30 metres or is it a contestable kick? Um but then putting yourself under pressure that you're only 10 yard, ten metres out from your own try line. So <laughs> I think teams will continue to sort of play around with, with the idea of that, but I think it's a, a more logical rule change to what was in place around the same governance of, of how the game was played in that part of the field. Is there any rule you would add or, you know, a current rule that you would take away from the sport of rugby? Um, take away... Or, or a rule you you want to see added? Yeah, one, I probably have to have a little bit more of a, an in-depth sort of opinion around this, but one that I heard of um, a couple years ago and, again, maybe biased, and this guy's a pretty polarising figure when it comes to world rugby and he's another Australian, but um, Eddie Jones has sort of pushed the idea of having a um, less numbers on the bench Um mm just allowing more fatigue to come into the game so that um, there are probably more opportunities from an attacking standpoint. Um, you're not getting fresh guys coming on with 30 minutes to go, knowing that you can cover all positions across the field and um, without attrition and fatigue coming into the game, it probably, um, you know, makes things probably a little bit more rigid and that's purely biased from a fly half as well. So I'm mm. sure other guys will have opinions around that as well. But um, I think that might be an interesting sort of experiment to see maybe maybe only have five guys on the, on the bench um, and see sort of how the fatigue aspect of the game plays into performance and results and, and body types, I guess, as well um, that you're having to, to adapt to the game. For sure. And then I guess who's your pick for the Six Nations? Six Nations. Um, without looking too much into the rosters that all the teams are sort of picked right now, I think um, off the back end of their performances in in the spring season, well, the Northern Hemisphere spring tour for the um, Southern Hemisphere teams going up there, I, I think I like England. Mm. Again, it's an easy easy pick. I just I think we've just found out that Owen Farrell's completely ruled out for the entire tournament. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they go with Marcus Smith for the entire um, portion of the series. But, um, yeah, I think there's some exciting players there and I've got, um, you know, some personal favourite players on that English team that I'd love to see do well. And then last question, does the U.S. qualify for the World Cup? Absolutely. Fair enough. Anything you'd like, anything you'd like to add last minute, anything you want to promote? Uh, not, not at this stage. I think very much early days for me in UCLA rugby and excited about the opportunity. So, um, you know, watch this space and um, really, really excited about the playing group that we've got here. And um, I guess the more exposure I can provide those guys on on a national platform for them to to play at the top level, um, I want to advocate for those guys. So, um, as I said, early days excited i think this weekend will be a really true test in terms of where we sit on the totem pole at the collegiate level um there's been some pretty pretty close results between ucla and arizona over the last couple of years and um you know arizona's had had the wood on us i guess um for the last couple of seasons so it'll be good to go out there and i know the boys are pretty hungry to to get a result so 
yeah, this this weekend's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Harry. Um, if you guys are in the LA area, please go check out UCLA Rugby. They can always use the support. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, guys. See you next time. This has been Lineouts by Earful of Dirt. Connect with Earful of Dirt online. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Earful of Dirt. You can email us at earfulofdirt at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 720-600-2679. For Aaron, Dan, and Victor, I'm Corey. Thanks for listening.